Well, hello there, everybody, and welcome to the Frogs of War podcast. I'm Jamie Plunkett. I'm Melissa Treewasser. And I thought, Jamie, that we had agreed okay? we appreciate that we were we were renaming this the uh, Poop Johnson podcast. I thought that we had made come to agreement on that, but I guess that's my bad. Yes, let's restart. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Poop Johnson podcast. I'm Jamie Plunkett. <laughs> And I no, I don't think I think that might change our viewership. We maybe get some people listening that uh, aren't, aren't really our cup of tea, but we'll we'll get to I Poop Johnson a little bit later. Um, but we have other we things can't to talk get about, to, maybe more pressing we things. We can't get yeah, we can't get to Poop Johnson quickly enough, though. Realistically, that's just yeah, for magical. Me, honest, that's um, <laughs> but yeah, this is the Frogs War podcast. It is Wednesday night. Your ears will probably be listening to this on Thursday morning during your morning drive, as a lot of people do. Um, but we're going to start off the top of this show talking about TCU basketball. Melissa, when we recorded last week's episode, we were you know, trying to get the episode recorded before TCU hosted Oklahoma State. The Frogs had just been absolutely demolished by Texas Tech and Baylor, uh, and we really didn't know where this thing was going to go. Since then, the Frogs are t- have gone 2-1 and one with a win over Oklahoma State at home, a huge win over Iowa State in Ames, and then, of course, the big Monday matchup against Kansas State where TCU lost in overtime, a heartbreaking defeat. Um, game was in their hands, led by four in the last four minutes. Um, and now, you know, TCU sits at 17-7, and 5-6 and six in the Big 12, and, it, you know, it seems like things are starting to turn in the right direction for the Horned Frogs. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think we, we talked about this game a lot as, you know, if TCU wants to be taken seriously as a Big 12 contender, those are the kind of games they have to win, and that still remains true. It is absolutely a disappointing loss, and, you know, fans don't want to talk about moral victories, and I get all that, but I was trying desperately to find time to, to write a piece today um, talking about just the sheer irony that we are upset about losing a game to a ranked Kansas team. Um, in February, like that, that to me is still just, it's, it's kind of a rare air for TCU basketball fans and just being able to appreciate how far this program has come and, and to understand that there's still a ways to go to really reach the heights that, that we expect them to reach. Um, but I, I think even after the loss to Kansas, it's not time to give up on this team. Um, I think that they show that they had the potential to play with the best teams in the country. And at the end of the day, despite being down, you know, multiple players. Kansas is still rolling out five-star freshmen pretty much all across the board. And so there's really no shame in losing to that program. Um, a win would have been huge. A loss doesn't make me feel like it's time to give up on the season or start thinking about next year by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, definitely not. Definitely not. Because uh, like you said, Kansas is Kansas. And Dixon said as much after the game. You know, uh, Alex Robinson said that, that as much as well. He said, you know, Kansas is Kansas. It doesn't matter who's who they're running out there they're always going to be one of the better teams in the country, you know, not to mention arguably the best team in the big 12 year over year. Um, I, I think for me, especially in this Kansas game, watching TCU you know, and, and there are really no silver linings at this point, but you know, if, if there is a, a positive takeaway, uh, TCU shot 38% from the floor and they should have won, you know, they yeah. played, they played pretty solid defense um, they had to mount a huge comeback in the second half when they were down by 12 points where their offensive efficiency was through the roof. They were attacking the basket consistently 
especially the last 10 minutes of the second half in overtime. Um, you know, there, there are some takeaways from this game that absolutely give you hope. You know, the Frogs still have seven games remaining on the schedule. Several of those are against uh, some not-great Big 12 teams. And so it looks like 20 wins is probably going to happen with this basketball team. And if that's the case, you know, they're going to be an NCAA tournament team. Um, we'll get to uh, bracketology in just a second. But, um, you know, Melissa, I think one of the things that I've noticed that has helped TCU over the last three games, uh, not only is Kendrick Davis getting a larger role minutes-wise, but he's incredibly effective offensively, and he's allowing Alex Robinson to play off the ball a little bit more. You know, I think one of the big things with TCU this season is that Alex has been forced to the right a lot. Uh, and he's not great when he's forced to the right, when teams take away his ability to go to the left. Um, and Kendrick his, Kendrick's ability to get to the rim and, and ability to pass from inside the paint, I think has freed up Robinson a little bit. Defenses aren't paying, uh, aren't capable of, of just focusing on him and forcing the ball out of his hands. Now there's another passing threat on the floor. And that seems to have opened up things for TCU's offense the last week or so. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I think it's two things. I think Kendrick is, he's just another ball handler, another creator, um, a guy that can create his own shot that, that does take a lot of the pressure off of Alex. Um, teams have started to pick up Alex full court and three quarter court too, just to wear him down because they know the minute load he bears. And so Kendrick being able to, to share that load helps. But, um, while I think he's been a big part of it, the other big part has been Desmond Bain has been looking for a shot in the first half of games. Um, after going scoreless against Baylor and Texas Tech in the first half, you know, he, he was super, super aggressive against Oklahoma State. Um, he was looking to shoot. I think he had, um, uh, five three pointers in the first half alone, but he was also driving to the bucket and, and just being aggressive getting to the free throw line. Uh, Iowa State, he started off a little bit slowly, but still finished, um, I think with 17 points overall and, and was clearly trying to make defenses pay attention to him. But when you have a guy like Bain who is being aggressive, you can't pay as much attention to Alex Robinson. You can't focus on keeping him out of the paint because he can just give it up to Dez and, and let him do his thing. Um, I still think that, that, uh, you know, that Alex just was not great the last couple of minutes down the stretch against Kansas and, and that last possession. Um, you know, he, I think he still does have a, a little bit of a tendency to hang on to the ball and I will forever wonder, uh, why TCU did not find a way to get the ball in Desmond's hands. Um, you know, in that last 17 seconds or so. But ultimately, um, this team is still going to live and die to some degree by Alex Robinson and what he's able to do. But seeing Kendrick start to step up and, and play a more significant role and just not more significant minutes has to give you hope and excitement, not just for this <clears throat> season, but going forward as well. Definitely. And you're right. They, there were some, those final two possessions against Kansas on Monday night in regulation were really frustrating to watch because it was a lot of, Dribbling at the top of the key, not much movement without the ball from anybody and not much ball movement generally until the last seven or eight seconds of, of the shot clock. And, uh, you know, when you're trying to put away a Kansas team, I think you always have to stay aggressive regardless of what the situation is. Um, so that was frustrating to see. You're absolutely right. But And you make another good point about Kendrick, too. This is positive for the future. Over the last two games, you know, he's played uh, – he's, he's averaged a, about 15 to 18 minutes a game – until these last two games, Iowa State and Kansas, he, had, he played 29 minutes against Iowa State, 36 minutes against Kansas. And in those two games, he has, he totaled 38 points, 11 assists, 8 rebounds, and 4 steals to just 4 turnovers and 4 personal fouls. 
So, you know, like you said, it, this is great for the future of TCU basketball. I think that if Kendrick Davis was a couple inches taller, he might have been the highest, high, most highly regarded point guard coming out in his class yeah. from high school last season because the kid well, the has thing- incredible vision – and he's just always so calm. He never looks like he panics, and he's always attacking yeah. the rim. Well, <clears throat> and the thing, too, that you have to think about with him is this is a kid who hasn't really developed an outside shot yet. And the minute that mm-hmm. he actually consistently can make a jumper from outside of 18 feet, he's going to be a really tough guard. Um, he's still you know, susceptible to blocks inside and, and, and tip balls and things because he just is not very big. But he certainly doesn't play like he's smaller, like he's scared. He's got a ton of moxie. He's got a ton of grit. He is almost unflappable. Uh, and, and he's just a freshman. Like, he is nowhere near the player that he's going to be by the time this is all said and done. And so it's going to be exciting to watch him develop and grow. Um, he, he seems like just a, a great leader, too. He's got the trust of his older teammates. Um, when he, you know, continues to form out his overall game, he has a chance to be truly, truly special for the Horned Frogs. He definitely does. And when you think about the other young guys on this team, too, Kevin Samuel being a redshirt freshman, Quad Noy just being a sophomore, uh, that's a really incredible core moving forward for this program. Yeah, and you've got some really highly touted freshmen coming in as well. I mean, it, it's <clears throat> and, and that's kind of been, been my point as I've been trying to formulate this article here is that we are in year three. Jamie Dixon inherited Kenrick Davis and Vladimir Brodzianski, who were nice pieces, but nobody looked at as being superstars. They're both getting paid as professionals currently. Um, he inherited Alex Williams. Robinson, who, who would – did I say Kenrick Williams? Did I not? I don't know what I said. You said Kenrick Davis. I don't know what I said. Yeah, Kendrick Davis. Um, he's, hopefully he's not getting paid. That'd be a violation. Um, but Kendrick yep. Williams, sorry, um, and Vladimir Brodzianski, you know, he inherited Alex Robinson, who hadn't done a whole lot at Texas A&M. Uh, the, you know, he had his first recruiting class, you know, where he got Desmond Bain that nobody had ever heard of. Jalen Fisher, who was a highly tied recruit, is no longer with the program. Um, and, and now he's just starting to bring in the types of players that he sees running his system long term. Uh, motion offenses are super, super uh, reliant on guys being able to shoot, guys being able to create their, their own shot. And right now you really only have two guys that can consistently do that. You know, Desmond Bain obviously is super talented in all areas offensively. Kendrick Davis looks like he has the potential to be a shot creator, but he's just a true freshman figuring it out. And so um, if, if you look at next year, what the potential of this team has to be compared to where it is right now, they're right where they should be for year three of the development. You know, I think getting to the NCAA tournament last year kind of changed people's expectations and just the way that they started. But this is a program that's lost four players, including, you know, a, a starter that's, that's probably their most talented true player. They've been barely hanging on. They fought the flu. They haven't gotten their freshmen to develop at quite the rate they needed to. Uh, I don't think it's impossible to say that they're still slightly ahead of schedule despite the disappointing result on Monday. Oh, I agree with that 100% that they're ahead of schedule, um, especially when you consider the attrition of this season. Uh, you know, and, and you know, you, we talk all about freshmen and, uh, you know, the recruiting class that, that Dixon has coming in, which is going to be one of the – arguably the best recruiting class TCU's ever seen with PJ Fuller and a couple other guys coming in too. Um, but realistically, some of the anchors of this program have been the older guys uh, the last two seasons. I mean, you talk about Desmond Bain and JD Miller, both since the last time we recorded a podcast have joined the thousand point club, um, you know, become the 37th and 38th players in TCU history to score a thousand points in their career. Alex Robinson for all his faults, is since last time we recorded now the leading assist 
um, yeah. the, the, the all-time assist leader in TCU history, breaking Corey Santee's record uh, against Oklahoma State. And so you've got a really well-balanced team in spite of the attrition. Uh, and it looks like a couple of these young guys, especially Kendrick Davis, are growing up at the right time for a you know last kind of regular season push to the end. Where, uh, mm-hmm. you know, all, you know, and then you get into tournament time where it's just win or go home and you do what you can and you leave it all out on the court. And, you know, I have no, I have no reason to, to believe that Dixon won't have these guys ready to go. Uh, and realistically mm-hmm. at this point, it's kind of all gravy from here because did we ever really expect this fast of a turnaround? I don't think so. Yeah, and, and I think that, that TCU expecting to go to the tournament this year is, is not an unfair expectation, even with the attrition. Um, and in order for the Frogs to do that, I think they really just need one more guy to develop. And so that's going to come down to either RJ Nemhard or Lat Mayen becoming a consistent either defender or consistent threat. And Lat looks like he's got superb 3 and D potential. RJ just doesn't seem like he can consistently figure out what his job is on the floor. You know, is he an outside shooter? Is he a drive mm-hmm. to the rat guy? Is he a defensive stopper? And, and where I'd like to see him be is a drive to the right guy because every time he goes to the hole, he is so smooth in the lane. Um, he moves so yes. well with the basketball inside of 20 feet. He's a lot stronger than he looks, and he's got he's just super crafty around the rim. Um, I think if they, he could just focus on, on just a, being a driver and then have a better sense of how to handle the double team, he has a chance to be a, a key cog for this team going forward. And he's a pretty good defender, too. He's certainly a willing defender. So – if either Ladd or RJ can, can kind of get something going down the stretch, then the Frogs are probably deep enough to win a couple of games in the Big 12 tournament, secure, you know, an upper half seed in the NCAA tournament, and maybe have a chance to get a favorable matchup in round two and, and potentially uh, go to the Sweet 16, which was 100% my expectation after the preseason before everybody decided to lose. Well, you, you know, you mentioned favorable matchups in the second round of the NCAA tournament. Right now on ESPN, Joe Lenardi has TCU as an eight seed um, in the West, paired up in round one against Florida State. Um, and the number, the second round team would be the number one overall seed, Tennessee. So yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily what we would call a fair, favorable yeah. matchup. Yeah. Um, also, I that, want no part those of Tennessee. Games be, I want no part of Duke. No, absolutely not. Let's see. The two seed in that in that division right now, or in that quadrant, whatever they call them, is Gonzaga. Uh, the three oh. is North Carolina. The four is Louisville. The five is Purdue. So that's pretty stacked, honestly. Yeah. Um, and and I don't you know, know. Lenardi. Lenardi is really good at projecting who's going to get into the tournament. I think he's got like a really insanely high percentage of like accuracy rate as far as calling what teams get in. Um, but you know, there's really very little stock to be placed in the actual bracketology sure. for matchup as far as matchups are concerned. Seeding, on the other hand, I think he's he gets pretty close some of the time. I don't yeah, know absolutely. that. Uh, you know, I, I think, frankly, I would prefer, you know, it, you know, there, there are a lot of ifs, ands, and buts here, but if, you know, TCU finishes out the season as we kind of hope that they do and they do end up getting a tournament bid, I would pr- actually probably prefer to see TCU somewhere in like the 10 or 11 seed range versus the 7 or 8 um, or, or the 8 or 9 just because, you know, that that really does set 
them up for a better second round matchup like you're talking about where they could avoid a one seed and maybe encounter um, a three seed instead uh, in the second round or, you know, barring an upset of a 14 seed. Um, you know, I don't know. I may put in the cart before the horse there, but um, I don't know. I just, I would hate to see TCU get, absolutely demoralized in the second round of the NCAA tournament, even if we're all, if we, even if we're in agreement that this is kind of ahead of schedule for this program. So, so looking at kind of the way the rest of the season plays out, what are your realistic expectations for what this team can do down the stretch in the big 12? That's a, that's a good question. You know, looking at their schedule, um, they've obviously they got Oklahoma at home this Saturday, Oklahoma's, not doing well in conference play right now. I think they're three and eight, three and nine. And since big 12 play has started, so that's not great at all. Um, you've got Oklahoma state. You go on the road to Oklahoma state next Monday. You just beat them at home. They're another one of the kind of bottom three teams in the big 12. And after that, you've got uh, Iowa state and West Virginia. So in their next four games, they play the bottom three teams in the big 12, plus a home game against the team that they've already beaten in Iowa state. Uh, so realistically, I think that this team is in a pretty good situation down the stretch. You know, they've also got, uh, they've got to go to Texas still, uh, and they have to go to West Virginia still. Um, and then they get Texas Tech at home, um, to kind of help round out the season there. But, um, and they got a home game against Kansas State too. I, I think that in these last seven games, what we really need to see from TCU is like a, maybe five and two. You know, if they can get to five and two in these last seven games and they're 20, what is that? That would put them at 22 and nine overall on the season. I, I think that point, um, you can look at this season and say that's an improvement, first of all, on last year's record, I believe. Um, and, you know, that's a much better finish to the regular season than TCU has had. Mm-hmm. since they joined the Big 12. Because you look at the last the way that they finished the last two years under Dixon, and, you know, last season uh, they had a nice four-game winning streak, and then they lost to Texas Tech, uh, and then they lost in the first round of Kansas State, uh, in, in the first round of the Big 12 tournament to Kansas State. And that was kind of a disappointing kind of end to the Big 12 tournament there. And then in 2016 and 17, uh, once Jalen Fisher was out, uh, they really struggled down the stretch. They lost... Uh, seven games in a row um, to close out the the Big 12 schedule. So five and two, I think, would be a reasonable um, expectation for this team in the last seven games. And I think we could be able to call we would be able to call it a success at that point, simply because, uh, like you said, this team is ahead of schedule. They've got incredibly young talent at this point with some senior leadership, um, and it sets up so that they're playing some of those weaker conference opponents in these next couple of weeks. And some, they've got some favorable home matchups again when you talk, talk about Kansas State and Texas Tech both having to come to Schulmeyer. But you're, you know, you're looking at having to if you if you say five of that last seven, then you're looking at a combination of things, and either that you have to be able to beat Texas Tech and Kansas State, both of whom were relatively dominant against TCU on their home courts, and Kansas State, mm-hmm. who is playing better basketball than it's probably the most underrated team in the country right now. The way I think they're they've won nine nine games in the Big Twelve schedule already. Um, they've, they've beat every team in the Big 12 once already. That's, that's mm-hmm. where they are. So they're playing pretty well, you would say. They, they're probably, in all reality, the biggest threat to unseat Kansas. If they beat Kansas um, in Lawrence, I think it's this weekend, 
um, than there and superbly in the driver's seat to win the conference mm -hmm. and, and dethrone. Uh, and who would have thought that, right? But then you've got Tech at home, and Tech is still just, I mean, they're, you know, they're up and up and down the season, but they're a really tough matchup for TCU. Or you're looking at having to go and win two games on the road, meaning that you're expecting to win, you know, in Morgantown and in Austin more than likely. And so it, it's certainly not a, a given that the Frogs can win five. I think four is, is a fair expectation, but five would certainly give you confidence going into the seating and that you would have a, a pretty good, uh, be in a pretty good position to have a chance to win an opener. Absolutely. I, and I, I totally agree with your, uh, your assumption there of four. I, you know, I'm looking at the final seven and I'm saying, okay, reasonable expectation for wins. Uh, Oklahoma at home um, and mm -hmm. Oklahoma That's State. A, yeah, and you West, have to win that game. Yeah, you have to win that game. And then if you're talking about road wins, you, I feel re relatively confident, especially seeing this team beat Iowa State in Ames the way that they did uh, with this team on the road against Oklahoma State and on the road against West Virginia. Those aren't guarantees by any stretch of the imagination, but if you if you mark those three as wins, and then you're talking about Iowa State at home, Texas Tech at home, Kansas State at home, and on the road at Texas needing to go two and two um, to get to that five-win mark to close out the season. So, it, like you said, five, I think, would give, team, give the team a, a huge confidence boost, give fans something to really talk about to end the season. Um, I do think it's feasible. I, you know, this team plays incredibly well at home. Look what they just, they, I mean, they took Kansas to overtime, shooting 38% and making some critical mistakes in the second half and in overtime. Uh, I, I, and you're absolutely right. Kansas State is an incredibly good basketball team, arguably the most underrated team in the country. With the way TCU plays at home, uh, I, I do see them taking at least one, uh, if not two of those remaining home games against Iowa State Tech and, and Kansas State. Um, you know, they've got four home games left. If they don't win at least two, that's going to be pretty disappointing. Sure. No, I think that's fair. And, and, you know, I think just to keep the fans on board too, because the thing that we've learned here in the last really two years of TCU basketball is we don't really know how to be basketball fans around this program. People haven't quite figured yes. out what basketball looks like, uh, collegiately. <clears throat> and, um, I saw after this team got their doors blown off by, you know, Baylor and, and Texas Tech on the road, that that Oklahoma State atmosphere was not great. Um, it was pretty disappointing from a mm -hmm. fan turnout standpoint. And I'm, I'm worried about an 11 a.m. game on a three-day holiday weekend against a non-marquee opponent because Oklahoma has been so bad lately. The fans have to, to show up. I mean, yeah. it, it would be just an inexcusable thing. This, this is a, a game that the team has to win. Period. You've got to beat teams that aren't as good at you on your home floor. Um, and, and if they can't get that done, that's going to be super disappointing. But it's going to be a lot harder to get it done without having a good atmosphere. And so I am just really admonishing TCU fans to show up, to get loud, um, and, and to be supportive of this team that, that you know, even Bill Self said Saturday night or Monday night is on the cusp of, of really being something special. So <laughs> we got to support them as they try to do so. Yeah, and I, yeah, we'd be remiss if we didn't say that the the atmosphere on Monday night um, had a lot to do with TCU's being in the game for the majority of the game. I mean, the student section was full. What thirty minutes before the game even started, uh, oh, the fans showed up on hour, time. Yeah. It was it was the loudest I've ever heard in that building on Monday, yeah. and that absolutely yeah. had an impact on a young Kansas team playing on the road, a team that had struggled on the road all year, um, you know, down the stretch. Yeah. So now do it. Now do it Saturday morning, TCU fans. Mm -hmm. Do it Saturday morning. That's the real yeah. challenge. We're asking them to get it done. 
we got to get it done too. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Melissa, let's uh, take a quick break. And then when we come back, let's get into uh, TCU baseball kicking off this weekend. Yes. Okay, so we're back. And TCU baseball kicks off this weekend, Melissa, with a the MLB4 tournament in Scottsdale, Arizona, where they're playing Cal State Fullerton, Virginia, and Vanderbilt's a stacked way to open up the season. You know, we've talked a little bit about it in our episode last week, um, just kind of previewing the season. But, Melissa, narrowing it down to this weekend, uh, what are you hoping to see from the Frogs right out of the gate against quality competition like this? Well, we, we learned a couple things um, today. Carlos uh, Mendez, uh, who writes for Press Box, had a, had a good little nugget of information and that Adam Oviedo will not play this weekend. And so... The first thing off the bat you're looking for is who's going to be that guy that steps up that wasn't expected to be a big-time contributor against the toughest competition that the Frogs are going to face until late in the Big 12 season, more than likely. I mean, the, these three teams are going to be as good as anyone they play. So who's going to man the hot corner? Where's where's some of that offense pickup going to come from? Um, Oviedo was a guy that was super highly touted coming into last year and who's had, by all accounts, an exceptional fall. And so losing him right off the gate is very, very disappointing. Um but expected back for the home opener, I believe. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> the other thing um, is Nick Lodolo will be the Friday night starter to the surprise of absolutely nobody. So um, mm-hmm. what I really want to see is, is what does Lodolo look like coming out Friday night against, against Fullerton? You know, is he, is he confident? Is he accurate? Um, is he hitting his spots? Can he be consistent? Can he give TCU a solid six innings in his first start of the season? And then the other thing I want to see is what do these new guys look like? What do they look like defensively? What's the chemistry look like? And who the heck's going to hit for this team? Um, there's a lot of question marks. There's on paper a ton of reason to be excited, like we talked about last week. But we don't know two-thirds of this team at all. We don't know anything about them. We've never seen them play at the Division One level. Uh, and they're opening up against just a stacked lineup of, of programs that's going to put them to the test. And so I want to see what the makeup of the squad is. I want to see what the chemistry looks like, and, and I, want to, I want to know who's going to get it done when the lights are on. Yeah, you know, just with so many question marks coming into a season where the Frogs, you know, are, they're coming off of a season that was relatively disappointing, um, it's, it's going to be nice to see if this team can hit the ground running because, you know, you, you started to gauge last year in non-conference play that this team maybe was going to struggle, especially when they got to Big 12 play, and that was the case. Um, being able to go into Arizona and take care of business and take at least two, if if not all three of these games, uh, would be absolutely huge, I think, for just kind of starting off the season on the the right foot. It's going to be an uphill battle, though, because these are three incredibly high-quality programs, um, not to mention just really good teams probably this year, but program-wise, these these teams have been incredible, um, you know, more often than not. And, you know, Dean Straka, who does a little bit of work for us, but also writes for uh, the Dallas Morning News, pulled a couple of stats about Cal State Fullerton today that I thought were just absolutely insane. Um, first of all, Melissa, did you know that since Cal State Fullerton joined D1 in 1975, uh, how did you see? Did you see these numbers today? Have, did you get on the Slack yeah, channel today? I don't want to cheat. Yeah, I saw just a little bit. Of okay, them, but they're still pretty, uh, pretty insane numbers. So I find them hard to believe. So it's wild. 
since joining since going D one in 1975, Cal State Fullerton has had zero losing seasons in baseball, <laughs> and they've made the College World Series 18 times, not just the playoffs, the College World Series 18 times. Just insane. That's wild. They have four titles, I so mean, that's not is- the greatest conversion percentage, I guess, for making the College World Series, but it's not awful. Four titles in 18 appearances. I'd be happy with one. I mean, personally. Yeah, Jeez. I mean, it's, it's you look historically at what Fullerton has been able to do as a quote-unquote mid-major. Um, you look at, at what Vanderbilt is annually and what Virginia is annually. Um, if TCU wins two of these three games, my expectations are going to go through absolutely through the roof. I mean, just to be honest, that's that is going to set set off this season. If to me, I think if they can get one win and they don't allow any team more than you know four or five runs, and the pitching looks like it's supposed to supposed to look, that's at least going to give you enough positive momentum going into a stretch of pretty winnable games to to get people on board with this program. But uh, there there's not a weak spot in any of these uh, any of these three games, and so I'm going to be very interested to see how this not necessarily young but pretty inexperienced team responds when the pressure really starts to tighten up. It absolutely, you're absolutely right. Um, so, Melissa, how do you think uh, TCU fares this weekend? Like I said, I, I'm expecting one win. Um, I, I think they go one and two, but I, I, as long as they don't get their doors blown off, I'm going to be pretty excited about about what happens. Um, show up, look prepared, look confident. Maybe, you know, maybe we see somebody establish themselves as, as kind of the big bat in the middle of the lineup next to Josh Watson. Maybe we see Zach Humphreys really take on more of a leadership role. But the biggest thing I want to see is what does Lodolo look like? What does Jared Janzek look like? Who's the third guy going to be in this rotation? And who closes baseball games for this, this program? Who's your late inning guy? And if they can win one game and they can answer maybe two of those questions, I'm going to feel pretty good about the results of the weekend. Yeah, I hear that. I, you know, I do think that it, with Janie and Lodolo, um, that this team is always going to be in a good spot to come away with a win. Um, I, th- I think they take two out of this weekend. I don't know which two, but I, th- I feel, I feel pretty good about them coming away two and one out of this weekend. Um, simply because I think they have the arm talent to win, win the low scoring games. And so mm-hmm. while maybe the right. bats take, a couple of games to really warm up and get into a rhythm. I think if the arms can come out and just be dominant right out of the gate, uh, that's going to, that's going to put TCU in a good position to, if they can just at least push two or three runs across to, to come away with some wins. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't think it's an unfair assertion to expect the the pitchers to show up. Um, it'll be interesting to see how they respond but based off of what we heard about how fall ball went, uh, there's no reason not to have high expectations for this staff going into this weekend. Definitely not. Definitely not. Uh, looking at the larger non-conference schedule, though, Melissa, you know, they've got this weekend. Um, they've got the Shriners Classic down in Houston in a couple of weekends. Uh, they go out to California to play Long Beach State in San Diego. Do you like, and this is kind of a, a pretty standard non-conference schedule for TCU baseball these days, do you like this balance of kind of big game weekends with those regional Tuesday, Wednesday, midweek games that we see throughout the non-conference and, and Big 12 play? 
Yeah, I mean, I really do love it. Uh, it could be a little dangerous because we've seen in years where TCU has struggled, them drop games to, to non-marquee opponents that have really hurt their ranking late in the year. And, you know, it's probably what kept them out of the postseason last year was they had some bad losses on their resume. But I love, especially when you are replacing so many pieces like TCU is this year, being able to play maybe some of these lesser talented teams on paper, have an opportunity to get some young guys in, develop your pitching staff. That's what they're best for, in my opinion, especially for the sophomores and juniors. Um, I think it's, they're just, they're fun environments. It's a little bit more laid back and it helps you kind of set your rotation and get into a rhythm heading into these big time weekend series. So, um, Tuesday nights at Lupton are great. You, that's usually when you get to see some home runs and some of the more high scoring games, which makes them a little bit more entertaining as well. Um, and that's where you get to learn about some of the young guys too. And, and not just the, the guys that you're rooting for now, but some of the, the kids competing for playing time behind them. Um, and, and there's still some interesting ones. I mean, you've got UTA, you've got UTA at Globe Live, which should be really, really fun. You get DBU, and DBU is, is a super underrated program. I think by TCU fans don't, don't necessarily realize how good that team is. You get to see, you know, uh, some other some other kind of fun teams that come around. At, you know, UT um, Rio Grande Valley is, has not been a marquee team, but some of the other uh, SFA, SFA and some of the other teams that have come through have, have turned out to be postseason teams occasionally. So, um, I, I, I like the way the Schwarzenegger schedules. He challenges his team, but then he also builds in some, some winnable games for them. And I think that's crucial in a long season. And I also like kind of the regional nature of these midweek games too. It's, it's gotta be really difficult to schedule programs for midweek games. And the fact that the state of Texas has such an abundance mm-hmm. of D1 baseball teams nearby, I think is really helpful for scheduling. Because, I mean, you play Abilene Christian twice. Obviously, Sam Houston State and SFA, they get the midweek game against San Diego following that weekend where they're in California already to play Long Beach State over a weekend. Uh, so that's kind of a nice mix-in. Gives Also gives the kids a, a little extra time in California, which is never a bad thing. Yeah. Um, three games against UTA, two games against D- DBU, and then Rio Grande Valley and Lamar rounded out. I think, uh, you know, obviously, TCU baseball is one of the better re- – recruiting schools in the country as far as baseball is concerned. They're, you know, one of the elite recruiting programs in the nation. Uh, but the ability to play local games and regional games, I think solidifies maybe a recruiting front as well, just in the state of Texas to say, you know, wherever you're from in the state of Texas, if your family's in Texas, we're probably coming to play a game near you because we're always going to play either in Houston for a tournament or we're going to be going to travel to Dallas and Abilene. And, you know, we're getting over to Arlington to play UTA. Um, like TCU baseball feels really accessible because of its non-conference schedule, especially maybe for some of those player families that live around the state. Yeah, Which, absolutely. you know, is really a, a secondary thing, but still. Yeah, and you get guys that are playing against kids they grew up playing against too. And so you continue to build baseball such a... A, uh, just a, a kind of a regional sport anyways in that regard. And so all those kids get mm-hmm. to know each other. And so you get a little bit extra level of competition sometimes, which is fun. And it's just, I mean, it's just more nights at the ballpark. It's college baseball is a great event. Um, people that, that don't invest in, in going out to Lupton season tickets are super, super cheap. If you go with uh general admission, it's, I, we haven't heard if they're selling beer this year, but after that seven game experiment, I kind of expect to see it there. Yes. So that they always are. adds a little bit of excitement. They are awesome. Mm-hmm. So not that so, we get to partake yeah. we're working, but. 
Right. We we work, and so we don't drink when we're at baseball games. Definitely not. But uh, they they um, are selling beer in the stadium this year, and they've changed it so that uh, there is no reentry policy now at the baseball okay. stadium, which is one of those kind of anticipated changes when a stadium starts to sell beer is that you're not allowed to come in and out anymore so they can kind of monitor consumption. Um, and so that is a big change this year is that you will no longer be able to, <coughs> excuse me, to just come in and out of a baseball game there because um, they are selling alcohol in the stadium. Which makes perfect sense. So yeah, it's it's fun. It should be a fun season. Um, I think it'll be a bounce back year. Um, I expect to see the Frogs in the postseason once again. I'm super pumped to see how they perform this weekend. I'm really excited for the Shriners Classic Tournament. Such a great tournament. Such a fun weekend down in Houston as well. Um, and, and, you know, you get some really marquee, marquee series in Lupton. You know, you get Texas coming to Lupton. You get Texas Tech coming to Lupton. Uh, you're going to see some super, super solid teams playing on TCU's home field, and that should be uh, should be a lot of fun. Um, can we talk for – can I go on, like, a mini rant here for just a moment? Is that Absolutely. allowed on this, on this radio it. show? I'll allow it. Um, so, you know, obviously TCU starts this weekend in Scottsdale, and then they play Abilene Christian at home for their, their home opener on Tuesday night next week. And then the following weekend, they're at home again, and they're hosting Grand Canyon University. Oh, I know where this ran. You know exactly where I'm going with this. I tweeted about it a couple weeks ago. Uh, I get irrationally angry every time I see Grand Canyon University's logo. And for those of you that don't know why, Jamie, why are you so mad at a logo? Look at it. Google it. Because it is TCU's logo. It's almost the same purple. It's that same arch logo. The only difference is that the first letter is a G instead of a T. And all of their TC, all of their uniforms for baseball, all everything looks like TCU baseball. And at some point, I'm wondering if like the university is going to get frustrated enough to do something about this because this has to be some sort of branding issue where. You know, they just look so – it's ridiculous. First of all, screw you, Grand Canyon University, for copying TCU's logo. Screw you for being a for-profit Christian university, screwing people out of their money. That's a whole nother rant that I won't have on here. Um, and also, just change your uniforms and change your logo because it's stupid for two schools to look so similar when they're about to play each other in a sport. It was confusing as hell last year in the opening weekend when TCU went out there God knows why they went out there to play a weekend series, but they did. And I, you know, took me two innings to figure out who was who just based on the uniforms because I was having to stream it on my phone and I couldn't tell what the teams were. And it was dumb. And Grand Canyon University is dumb. And if TCU doesn't sweep them, I'm going to freak out. And I hate them. And that's it. That's the end of it. End rant. Do you feel, do you feel better? No. A little bit better? No. Okay. No. Um, I, I would be very interested to hear from TCU licensing to know because you can't. I mean, that's that's too big of a university to not have had this conversation with TCU at some point. So I wonder if they paid them a certain sum of money in order to be able to do that. But I also feel like TCU would be more protective of their licensing than to accept money from a thing called Grand Canyon University. So it'd be well, a good question. Maybe maybe we can reach out to some folks and find out. Considering how protective TCU gets every time we try to make a T-shirt, 
you would think they would protect their brand a little bit more when another university is blatantly ripping them off. Yeah, you would think, but yeah, that's a question for uh, somebody that knows more than we do. Yeah. Who is the new, who is the new uh, marketing and branding person since Del Conte stole all of our people away? Do we know? I'm not exactly sure of the answer. Um, I feel like I've seen that person on Twitter, but I don't entirely know who it is. They're, they're quieter than Drew, which is disappointing. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe we can get an official statement or something somewhere down the line. Yeah, we'll give the people the information they want. We'll go through channels. We'll go through channels to figure this out. Yeah, sources and channels. Oh, I do feel a little bit better now. I'm not gonna lie. Good. I'm glad. I'm happy for you. All right, let's uh, let's take one more break, Melissa, and then we'll come back for the last couple minutes of the show and talk about some news and notes from around the mothership at SB Nation. Okay, we're back again. Uh, Melissa, did you know uh, that coaches are upset about the way that college football players can transfer now? This is shocking that coaches are upset about something they don't have control over. I never knew that coaches were such control freaks. It's really not like a standard personality trait of people in these roles at all. Definitely not. Uh, so there was an article um, by Alex Kirshner on uh, Wednesday, February 13th, year of our Lord, 2019, uh, titled Eight Ways College Coaches Whine About Players Being Able to Transfer. And Melissa, ours truly uh, legendary head coach Gary Patterson is quoted in this article as being um, disappointed if, in one aspect of this. The quote uh, is under the header transfer freedom is teaching these dang kids the wrong lessons. Uh, and Alex quotes, Gary Patterson is saying, what we're teaching our kids to do is quit. I'm not starting. I'm not getting my playing time. Every freshman I've known wants to transfer because it's harder than anything else he did in high school. As I tell people all the time at your house, you're going to allow your 17 year old, 18 year old to run your household, let them pay your bills. That's what you do. No, you don't do that. So why are we putting our jobs in jeopardy because of an 18 year old? That's a pretty interesting quote. I think we were there uh, when he went on this transfer we were. rant. Um, and, and that quote <clears throat> is not being re- reprinted in its entirety, which makes it sound a little bit different than what I think Patterson actually was saying, yeah. at least in my opinion. So um, from, if someone who, room, what do you think he was actually getting at there? Well, so so if I can remember correctly, and this is going back to like August, and my memory is is well well known not to be exceptional, but the whole rant I remember really stuck with me because it was basically talking about the 17 and 18 year olds not having the capacity always to make the big picture decision. Something that I know full well as a high school teacher, um, and so his thing was you don't you know the, the at some point you know the adults in the room sometimes at some point understand, you know, the big picture and are going to make better, more informed decisions that you don't want the 17, 18 year olds running your household. And, um, I am, I am pro transfer, but I also hate it. I don't think that you can hold these kids to hostage with a scholarship or, um, with playing time or whatever else that you only have four years of eligibility to do something that you've worked your whole life to earn. And if you feel that you have an opportunity to do it better elsewhere, then who are we to tell you that you can't? Um, I, I think it's going to be interesting now that Justin Fields has been granted a waiver 
um, that we see what Tate Martell is trying to do down at Miami. I don't want college free agency. That that to me just there, there's something that just doesn't feel right about that because I think that it will get the boosters and the money involved more than ever and make it dirtier than ever. But I also don't think we can tell them not to. By the same token, I understand to some degree where the coaches are coming from a little bit too. Their livelihoods are on the line. And, and mind you, they're getting paid a lot of money to do this. But mm-hmm. you really don't want 17, 18, 19-year-old kids to be the primary decision makers around your program to determine whether you keep your job or not. That's that's a dangerous way to live as, as someone who lives that, that life every day. Um, I think Patterson's more was before we give them full freedom – one thing that he says often is um, you sometimes you have to do what's best for them, not what they want, because oftentimes what we want isn't what's best for us. And that doesn't mean telling them no all the time, but it means helping them understand the entirety of the decision-making process before you tell them yes or no. Um, and, and to some degree, I agree with him while also being pro transfer policy, because it is ultimately about what's in the best interest of the kids. That was a lot of words that said probably not a whole lot, but maybe the gist of it was clear. Maybe so. And, you know, I think ultimately, and I think we've had this conversation before on the show, I'm I'm okay with transfer in this new world. I think it'll settle down and kind of figure itself out over the course of time, as most changes do. Um, but realistically, I'm of the opinion that as long as a head coach or an assistant coach or anybody else associated with kind of the, the paid side, the, or I guess above board paid side of college football is allowed to go wherever they want, whenever they want, uh, then, then players should be too, you know? And, And as far as the student portion of this student athlete is concerned, regular everyday students at a, at a university aren't penalized for transferring. They don't have to sit out of coursework related to their major for a year just because they transferred from, you know, Texas A&M to Utah or whatever it might be. Uh, So I think, um, you know, it it eliminates a double standard. And sure, that's frustrating for coaches, especially when you consider that their job security is so closely tied to the kids that they bring in to perform well. Um, But... I, I really do just think that it'll it'll kind of eventually figure itself out. Yeah. Well, to me, the first change, the next big change they need to make is that if a coach leaves, if a kid signs in the early signing period and the coach leaves before the regular signing period, those kids should automatically be released from their national letters of intent and allowed to re-sign in February. I totally uh, why agree with that. Signing period, there's no, yeah, if there's no benefit for it. what what Manny Diaz did, um, uh, who was the other one, the other big name coach that left in between uh, what Cliff Kingsbury Dana. did. Like, you know, I hate, yeah, Dana was another one. That's all. Yeah. Dana was a good <clears> one. And, you know, I'm, I'm, while I'm uh, super, super bummed that Brew McCoy ended up at Texas, like he had every right to get to leave. I mean, you mm-hmm. you're promised one thing, they deliver something different, Let those kids explore their option before signing day in February. That at that point, maybe they choose to resign. Maybe a coach doesn't want them. I read an article about a Fort Worth kid that, had been committed to Houston for forever. And then Holgerson was like, mm, you're not really in our plans going forward. You know, let those kids get released and, and go look, look for other opportunities elsewhere um, and give them a chance to be where they're happy. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. Uh, the next thing from the mothership, Melissa. Um, so the American, no, the Alliance of American football 
had its opening weekend over the weekend. I watched the San Antonio Commodores play or Commanders, someone, something Commander. play yeah. um, the San Diego Fleet uh, down in the Alamo Dome on a Saturday night because there were four Horn Frogs on San Antonio's team. You've got Aaron Green, Cole Hunt, John Diars, and Nick Orr all playing significant minutes for. Uh, the San Antonio Commanders, which is kind of fun to see. Um, but there are some interesting rule changes in the AAF that SB Nation uh, thinks that maybe the NFL and college football could learn from. So, Melissa, how would you feel if college football adopted these Amer- Alliance of American Football rules? Um, no kickoffs or extra points. Possession begins at the uh, team's own 25-yard line, and you must have attempt a two-point conversion after every touchdown. Um, onside conversions. Uh, so instead of an onside kick, you have to convert from fourth and 12 from your own 28. You have to be down by 17 points or more or trailing with five minutes or less in the fourth quarter. Um, and in overtime, you have one possession for each team starting from the opponent's 10. I don't think that that third one is as important for college football as it might be for the NFL. So, Melissa, about those first two, about no kickoffs or extra points, uh, having to go for two um, after a touchdown, and then like the onside conversion kind of thing. Do you think t- Do you think college football can cons- should consider adopting something like that? The on the onside conversion rate, absolutely hundred percent, because we're seeing a, a era of hashtag college kickers. So the opportunity to actually convert an onside kick is lower than ever, right? Um, but then also what you end up with is in these, this, this land of spread offenses and, and rules geared towards the offense, a fourth and 17 doesn't seem all that impossible. So now you're giving a much better odds of actually seeing some of those plays convert and, and team, you know, more, more exciting games, more come from behind victories, more memorable moments that's going to get people talking. And that's really what college football is all about at this point is, is that shared experience. Um, I would love to see that. I'm not a hundred percent sure how I feel about the kickoff rule. Uh, if it's a player safety issue, then by all means, let's, let's eliminate it and go, and go with the, uh, the AIF changes. But man, and, and RIP to Terp's time at TCU, but, uh, watching that guy and some of those super dynamic players return kicks in college football where, where the talent isn't as deep and so you don't have as good of coverage teams is, is one of the best parts about the game. And, and I would be very, very sad to see that taken away. And the two point conversion rule, I mean, extra points are kind of dumb, so maybe that's a maybe that's a good rule. But um, I do want to leave just a little bit of uh, the tradition of the game, and kickers are people too. Well, they'd still have a chance to miss field goals. That's true. That's true. You know, to miss field goals. No, I'm, just I'm sorry. I have to say it because other people can't hurt it hurt me with it if I just claim it for myself. Fair. So fair enough. Um, you know, I, I, there was another thing, too, that I think is really cool uh, from the AAF in this first weekend. They have this thing called a sky judge, which sounds a lot like Jerry yeah, Jones's sky mirror, cool. um, where you have an official in a booth, not actually in the sky, but in the stadium somewhere. So it's a little misleading. Um, but they have the ability to kind of phone down and just correct obvious and egregious errors. I think that would be magnificent, especially in the Big 12, where officiating 
mistakes are a regular occurrence for someone to just be able to like buzz down to the ref and say, Hey, uh, yeah, you, you missed like a very obvious pass interference there. Uh, so call a PI it's 15 yards and it's going like that would make, yeah, I think that would make every fan of every team incredibly happy. Don't you? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm a hundred percent on board with that. I like it because it doesn't necessarily slow down the game. You have an impartial observer. Um, you still give coaches the opportunity to challenge, but you're you're looking at those super egregious errors so that maybe the Saints fans would finally stop talking um, and, and getting those corrected before they can legitimately harm the game. Uh, some human error is part of it. You know, it's it's just like um, uh, calling balls and strikes in baseball, but you don't want human error to actually change the course of the game. And so having someone get it right is super crucial. Um, so so here, I have not gotten a watch, chance to watch the game yet. Um, that's something that, that is on, on the schedule for this weekend, especially to see the, the Horned Frogs go. But having watched it now and just after your initial experience, it looked to be an overwhelming hit. If I were to give you a two-and-a-half-year over-under on how long the AAF lasts in its current iteration, would you take the over or the under on that? I think I'll take the over. Um, there seems to be some really – significant money backing the league at this point. Uh, the kind of star power in the league, especially from a coaching and front office perspective, seems to be yeah. present in a real significant way. Uh, I think you're, I mean, you're always going to kind of get the, the B list players who aren't NFL ready or NFL caliber. Um, but you know, the, from, from what I watched, it was still exciting it was competitive. There were some really big hits. I mean, the San Diego quarterback, I, I thought his head got ripped <laughs> off at one point, the way yeah. he got hit by a defensive end. Um, so, the, you know, it was entertaining. It was exciting. It was competitive. It was all the things that you want in a good football game. Uh, and it came during a time where there wasn't supposed to be football. And I think the ratings yeah. reflected, too, that this might have some staying power because it pulled better than the NBA did over the weekend as far as eyeballs Jeez. go, which is just insane wow. to me. Um, you know, I wouldn't be shocked if in, like, three or four years the NFL found a way to make it kind of a G, similar to the NBA's G League where maybe they have some late-round draft picks who – they can stash in that league and get them some game experience and playing, you know, I don't know if, if something like that is feasible down the road, but I, I think based on even just this first weekend and seeing kind of where the league stands, I, I think the AAF does have some significant staying power. Yeah, well, it'll, it'll be interesting to watch. And, and for the meantime, just seeing a couple of uh, beloved TCU guys get a second chance to, to find their way to the league is, is pretty awesome. And obviously we'll hope that, It'll stick around for the sake of them and their opportunities. Yeah. And, Melissa, now we've come, though, to the best part of this show. Yes. I've by been far. waiting. I've been waiting so long. By far. Um, there's a player in Canadian Football League. Hopefully he'll get to the AAF as quickly as he can. He's a defensive tackle. He seems born for, for the XFL. Yes. The Toronto Argonauts signed him today. He is from the University of Kentucky, and his name is Poop Johnson. Poop. Poop. Name his is name Poop. is Poop. The, uh, the URL for the SB Nation story was pretty outstanding, by the way. Aha, uh -huh, Poop is funny, y'all. Well, well done, guys. Well done. And 
Did you know, do you know why he got his nickname, Melissa? Um, so I had seen just bits and pieces of this story, but please fill me in with the people. It's literally because he talks about pooping all the time and that he poops a lot. He said once in an interview that he poops five times a day. Whoa, that's a healthy diet. That, a lot of fiber. A lot of fiber. so much fiber. I mean, this dude is not shy about making hay in the toilet. And so, I mean, I feel like he earned it. He's making mud. mud. (laughs) I just can't get over Um, it. This dude's nickname is actually poop. It's so great. I'm a 32-year-old man, and I'm laughing at a guy named Poop right now. Do we do we want to mention that that he has uh, different brown colored uh, dreads or is that have we gone too far? Like oh, the, the, even no. his hair, kind of yeah. like reminiscent of of poop. <clears throat> um, he's a big dude though, so you know if a guy that size who played D tackle in the SEC wants to call himself poop, like nobody's going to tell him not to. Nobody's going to make fun of him. Um, he can pretty much do whatever he wants at that point. He's a he's a very large man. Yeah, and his name is poop. he is. His name is Poop, and everything is right with the world in these moments. Um, the last uh, thing, though, Melissa, okay. as we move as we move on from Poop uh, to more important things like recruiting rankings, um, the last thing I wanted to talk about, uh, Richard Johnson wrote this um, for the Mothership Today, uh, or I guess Tuesday, um, Texas A&M Internet warns of a Longhorn recruiting rankings conspiracy. Is this the most Aggie thing that you've seen this week or just another Aggie thing that you've seen this week? Well, you have to look at where the conspiracy starts with a very, very well-known A&M, what is he, Aggie message border somewhat. I see this guy. Every time someone's complaining about something dumb and Aggie said, it's usually coming from Billy. Uh, so, So it's not really surprising. Uh, honestly, like I'm far more Aggie offended by their attempt to um, say that Texas is getting more money than them and says that they need $55 million in the stipend. Oh my God, um, I than saw I am that about too. them complaining about recruiting. Yeah, that's um, AM and, and uh, UT fighting over things on paper in March, September or February, March, um, while refusing to play during the regular season and having yet to win anything of real significance. It's just kind of par for the course this time of year. And so let them let them fight and battle over the recruiting rankings. We'll just get back to trying to beat them. That's all I care about. I agree. But uh, Billy Lucci of, of Tex-Ags fame is just all over Twitter apparently complaining yeah, about he, he, Texas he getting, like, all him. of these recruits, like, bumped up too much in the recruiting rankings. And that's what pushed yeah. Texas ahead of Texas A&M. All I ever see is Billy Lucci complaining about things that seem completely and totally irrelevant when you talk about actually winning football games. Because you can't complain about something you don't do. Boom. Rusted. Also, remind you, as they're asking for $55 million, they're paying a coach $75 million guaranteed. And there's no buyout clause. It's all guaranteed. Yeah. Um, One last note before we wrap this episode up. Uh, It should be noted uh, that TCU women's basketball beat Iowa State tonight, um, which is a Huge win. big win. A big win. Congrats to the Horn Frog women's basketball team. They are now 18 and 6 on the year, Melissa, 
14 and one at home. Is this going to be a tournament team too? Is there a potential for both basketball teams to make their NCAA tournaments this year? It is starting to look like Reagan Peebley has this program where it needs to be. Um, they have a couple of, of pretty signature wins at this point and knocking off a really, really good Iowa State uh, team. Again, they came from behind to do so um, early, came from behind, but still. Um, you're starting to, to look at a resume that is is probably a tournament resume. If they can get to 20 wins and, and they can win a game or two in the Big 12 tournament themselves, uh, I, I think I think we're looking at a tournament team. I think they've definitely earned the right to be in consideration. They were a bubble team last year. Um, they they should be in this year, and and that's that's huge for that program. Um, I, I say this knowing that I don't do it myself, but we talked about the fans supporting the guys. No matter what, we've got to see more people coming out to the girls' games too. They they have done a lot uh, to earn earn people's respect, and uh, they're a really fun program to watch. They've got some great players. Go watch Jordan Moore while you can. Uh, she's going to mm-hmm. be playing in the WNBA next year, and so you definitely want to see her do her thing. She's a freaking beast. Yeah, she's a rock star. She's an absolute rock star. Uh, so get out there and support TCU women's basketball. They're on a roll this year. Uh, they're 8-5 and five now in Big 12 play, which is pretty great. So get out to the Sholly for any basketball that's happening there for the rest of the year, folks. Yes, be there Saturday morning, 11 a.m., Oklahoma. We've got to get this one, and we're, uh, we're going to need a good crowd's support to do it. Absolutely. And with that, this has been another episode, another stellar award-winning episode of the Frogs of War podcast. You can follow me at Frog Preacher on Twitter. You can follow Melissa at the Coach Melissa on Twitter. Follow Frogs of War at Frogs of War. And obviously read all of the content from our great Great writers at frogswar.com. Um, we've got some really cool stuff coming up this week, uh, including previews of TCU's baseball season, uh, some notes about TCU's upcoming, upcoming game against Oklahoma for basketball. Um, so make sure that your eyes are on the site and follow us on Twitter. And obviously subscribe, like, and leave a rating for the podcast. You can find it pretty much wherever podcasts are um, given away or whatever it might be. So for that... This is the Frogs of War podcast. I'm Jamie Plunkett. I'm Melissa Treeblosser. Go TCU baseball. Go Frogs. <laughs> <laughs>